you just have to be with a section like that, uh, uh, ruthlessly uh, self-aware as a judge. And you have to understand that it is a discretionary section that's been defined by the judiciary. So we've, we've defined into that section a discretion which is, in fact, uh, largely the original Oaks test. And in that test is this definitionally legislative function of weighing, balancing, uh, ad hoc sort of uh, assessing cost benefits. Uh. Joanna Barron. Today's conversation features Chief Justice of the Manitoba Court of Queen's Bench, Glenn Joyal. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation with Chief Justice Joyal. We talk about the effect of the Charter on Canada's political culture, both in terms of which institutions the public looks to to resolve public controversies like assisted death or equality demands, increasingly the courts, of course, and we also look at the procedures by which institutions like the legislature and the courts use to resolve these questions. Just to note briefly that Chief Justice Joyal and I recorded this conversation before a relevant development. We talk a bit about the Section 33 notwithstanding clause in the Charter as a quote-unquote dead letter, um, and the government of Saskatchewan recently proved us both wrong by indicating its intention to use it in response to a judicial decision about Catholic school board funding. But we will talk about that much more in a forthcoming podcast. Uh, I will also link to the text of the speech that Chief Justice Joyal gave at a conference in Toronto entitled The Charter and Canada's Political Culture, Are We All Ambassadors Now?, which we refer to on Runnymede's website where this podcast is embedded. Enjoy. Uh, so I'm very lucky to be here in beautiful Quebec City with Chief Justice Glenn Joyal, um, who is here on Canadian Judicial Council hearings, which we won't talk about today, or at least not very much. Um, but what we, what we will talk about is uh, a speech that Chief Justice Joyal gave last month at the Canadian Constitution Foundation's annual Law and Freedom Conference. Um, and it was concerning the Charter and the shifts that it has effectuated and occasioned in Canada's political culture. And I, I thought it was um, provocative in a subtle way, your speech, and the provocation you made is this. Uh, at what cost has the Charter era come in terms of Canadian political culture? How has it um, effectuated a shift in the carefully calibrated orchestrated relationship between the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches. Um, and you also spoke with some subtlety about things that people aren't really speaking about right now in the public law space or amongst the judiciary, to my knowledge. Um, and so I want to start out with this notion, just because it's very infrequently spoken of in uh, legal and academic circles, of Canadian political culture. Um, and what you view as the, the sort of defining features of Canadian political culture. And then we'll talk about how you think the Charter has impacted it. Well, thank you for saying that I provoked uh, somewhat subtly because that'll give me an immediate defense if I ever get in trouble for that speech. But um, the, the speech, I, I suppose, in some ways was provocative only because it, it was touching familiar subjects uh, about judiciary and the charter, and we'll get into some of the institutional balance or imbalance, depending on how you want to characterize it, 
from the perspective, this perhaps different, unique perspective of political culture. Um, political culture, just to, to, to sort of address it for a moment, because when you talk about political culture, the average citizen or even the average sort of engaged constitutional geek um, would perhaps tune out, their eyes might glaze over, but political culture is, I think, an enormously useful concept and reference point for analytical purposes. Uh, so what is political for culture, first of all? It, it's the, most simply, I suppose, stated, it's, it's the attitudes and beliefs of a citizenry and its institutional actors uh, towards its institutions and its political system. Um, and why is it useful or valuable? Because it gives you an insight into not only those attitudes and beliefs, but the demarcation lines in which policy justifications take place. So it can be much more complicated than that, but with those reference points already in place that provides you kind of an interesting uh, perspective from which to assess both the uh, legislative um, place currently in the polity and the judicial place in the, in the polity. And um, for me, uh, using that perspective, you see, I think, what has been a real transformation in the attitudes and beliefs of, of, of citizens and institutional actors towards the judiciary. And that um, is, I think, a, a very, very um, interesting development. Some will judge it as being a development which is not entirely desirable, but it certainly reflects, I think, and some might say, as do I, um, um, a change that was um, both caused by and now reflects um, a, a new predominance on the part of the judiciary. And by extension, I'm going to say a institutional imbalance. Yes, and so to be more specific about some of your claims, you say um, that the Charter era, particularly in the last two decades, as you know, we've really developed <clears throat> a culture around the Charter and Charter jurisprudence has occasioned a, a, a growth in sort of liberal neutrality um, people have gotten used to the notion that the courts and not the legislatures are the sites where major social and policy issues are fought. Um, and you say that this is at odds with Canada's mixed heritage of communitarian, liberal, and non-liberal elements. Whether it's at odds, uh, Joanna, it certainly uh, potentially compromises. I'm going to say it does compromise. I won't. Uh, be, uh, uh, you know, at all ambiguous about it, compromise two conduits through which Canadian political culture, traditional Canadian political culture, had been traditionally expressed, uh, which is to say its legislation and, and frankly, the public discourse. Um, and um, we are now living in a political culture where if you accept, as I think you've just accurately summarized, the traditional Canadian political culture was this really interesting ideological blend of a predominant, and I, I underscore the predominant liberal strain, but infused with and informed by a really idiosyncratic ideological melange of, of, of classical Toryism and, 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 and social democratic influence from various strains of, streams of immigrants throughout the, uh, the last century. Um, you now see a, 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 a less obvious reflection of that in both the legislation and the discourse. So you're seeing less in the legislation that's reflective of a communitarian kind of uh, perspective, and you're certainly seeing in the discourse, a discourse that is, as somebody uh, in, the, in the States, I think it was Marianne uh, 
Glendennan has called it a rights talk. Again, by itself, not a, a bad thing, not a, a thing to lament, but it, it is definitely a change. Um, and the liberal neutrality, well, that's the posture that the courts have, have effectively taken. It certainly does, I think, in some ways um, uh, inhibit what used to be a bold and purposeful um, government, both provincially and, 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 uh, and, and federally. When I say a bold, purposeful government, I'm not talking about a big government. I'm talking about a purposeful government doing important national things based on a vision and also uh, important things that might involve, for example, the inculcation and nurturing of certain habits and, and attitudes and, and, and intimations in its citizenry to make a, a better citizenry. All of that, I think, in, in, in a way has been somewhat inhibited in this, uh, in this era of the Charter. Those are big conversations that we can't get into today, but it really does, I think, uh, relate to the way the legislative branch, and, and I'm combining now the legislative branch and the executive, how it now feels, I think, somewhat inhibited. Um, I'm not, and we'll get into this perhaps, I'm not sanctifying the legislative and, and leg executive branches. Those branches have, have fallen into some um, disfavor amongst some. Uh, there's a certain cynicism and there's good reasons for that. But uh, notwithstanding that, there is as well, though, a, a, a predominance on the part of the judiciary, uh, which has created an institutional balance, which has only been, I think, further exacerbated by and perhaps in some ways caused by this, um, this, uh, this disrespect that seems to surround the, uh, the parliamentary institutions and our, our political institutions generally. Yeah, and so as, as you spoke about, and as you know much more about than I do, um, in the original, in the lead-up negotiations to the adoption of the Charter in 82, um, particularly the provinces had grave concerns um, about the, the nature of legislation that uh, Pierre Trudeau's government was proposing and the widely viewed compromises. And by the way, they were opposed in some reasons because they were proponents of Westminster style deliberative parliamentary democracy. And in some cases, because they simply thought that um, that parliament could better safeguard and, and craft rights and, and remedies for its citizenry. But in any event, it's universally agreed that sections 33 and section 1 were the compromises. Section 1 um, is our what is called our limitations clause, which says that the, the rights and freedoms guaranteed in it are uh, subject to the limitations that are reasonable in a free and democratic society. And section 33 is the um, much maligned notwithstanding clause, um, which permits parliament in theory to pass legislation um, uh, you know, outside of the context of the charter. So let's first talk about section 33 and the notwithstanding clause. Um, some constitutional academic scholars have, have suggested that the reason why section 33 has fallen into disuse, it's, it's a dead letter, um, is because of the early history of Quebec with it. Um, and I'm referring to the case of Ford, the Attorney General of Quebec, um, which is, of course, the Bill 101 language rights case. Um, Quebec had legislation that only permitted commercial language, commercial signs to be in French. Um, the Supreme Court of Canada said it violated freedom of expression, and Quebec responded with legislation, or rather sort of a, a round of legislation invoking notwithstanding clause. Um, so I thought that was an interesting theory that, look, because it's become associated with Quebec rejectionism, other governments have been loath to use it. Do you have any thoughts on it? Well, the timing was certainly not great for those who thought, thought that the notwithstanding clause 
constituted an important, uh, uh, indeed an essential component part of, of the 1982 Compromise. Um, so I, I, don't, uh, I don't contest that proposition at all. Um, I, I think it's probably more complicated than that. That was probably the first step that seemed to cause this uh, attitude that's congealed around this belief that it simply can no longer be used. Um, I have to be careful because this ultimately any use of, of that clause will be a political decision, so I don't want to be seen to be advocating for uh, its use uh, or circumstances in which it might be used, although I'm prepared to discuss it, but that is fundamentally a political decision. But maybe you can come back to that, but getting to the disuse of, of, of that article or that provision, I think it's in part the fact that Quebec invoked it. It's also though the concurrent, and I come back to my original point, um, degeneration of parliamentary institutions and the diminution of, of their importance. Um, and that of course was, as I say, contemporaneous with or concurrent with a, a greater place being taken by, by the judiciary. Um, the judiciary, through its determinations over the last couple of decades, has taken a central place in the Canadian polity. And people seem to be very comfortable with this idea that judicial formulations in many respects and the idea of constitutionality is a bit of a conversation stopper. Uh, so when you combine the, you know, the increased legitimacy in that perspective um, and the, I'm going to say, the uh, decreased popularity and, and respect for some of our political institutions. Uh, in addition to the, the, the chronology, the unfortunate chronology of uh, the government of Quebec getting the first sort of play with the Section 33, um, it, it's really conspired to, uh, to, 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 uh, to not, not be ideal for that section. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's interesting to to see a section like that rest dormant, at some point, if, as I would like to see, uh, Parliament and the legislative branch engages in a more coordinate sort of interpretation of the judiciary, and if ultimately on some issue of, of, of grand importance where uh, the political branch feels that the court is, is uh, simply out of touch in ways that transcend constitutionality and, 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 and and, and what the court would say is constitutional supremacy, they might decide to, to invoke the notwithstanding clause. But again, if it's done in a coordinate way, the parliament or the provincial legislature would be doing it for a principled reason because they would be bringing forth their own interpretation of the charter that presumably they would have to articulate, get out into the public and, and, and try to persuade, and that would be their safeguard in, in its use. So uh, it's not over yet for those who see in the 1982, uh, and Section 33 in particular, uh, a potential um, moderating uh, effect on, on what some is, uh, perhaps might see as an institutional balance right now. But I, I, I think it's important to talk about Section 33. It's, it's, it's not there by, by accident. It's, it's there as a result of a purposeful decision uh, which is in the context of a compromise. Well, yes, and there's the classic principle of statutory interpretation that legislation should be read so as to give effect to it rather than no effect. Right, right. So it, it's a tool in the toolbox. But I, I want to I um, circle back to something you mentioned just now about coordinate in interpretation, um, which is a rather controversial idea. Um, of course, the Constitution Act 1867 tells us that the Constitution, Section 52 of that Act, 
the Constitution is the supreme law of Canada. Um, but the widespread perception in the academy and amongst the general public is that the courts, and particularly the Supreme Court of Canada, have the final say of what the Constitution means. Um, and it's a somewhat controversial idea that actually other institutional actors, particularly Parliament, um, can can have their say in interpretation. Um, and some people say this is that coordinate interpretation raises a sort of rule of law issue because it's messy and it's indeterminate. Um, but I think the other side of that coin, and I think you touched on this at, at your Hart House speech, is that if we leave all sort of uh, fleshing out of constitutional rights to courts, we're going to get an increasingly legalistic, technical series of tests and delineation of these sort of um, technical legal tests that are pretty... Uh, pretty incomprehensible to the general public, perhaps even sometimes incomprehensible to lawyers. Well, I think you, you, you have it exactly right. I mean, let, let's be clear. Section 52 sets out the notion of constitutional supremacy, not judicial supremacy. Now, to be fair, there's, there's, there's certainly uh, uh, a lot of academic work uh, and a lot of academics who uh, reflexively endorse that, that position. When I say reflexively, I don't mean to say without thought, um, because these are principled arguments. And Justice Rosti, and I forget the case now himself, talked about there being little doubt but that the judiciary is sort of the last word on, on the Constitution. But um, I don't know that that's as definitive and as categorical a conclusion as, 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 as some might think. Um, I think it's important for government if it's to retain its purposeful, um, its purposeful uh, uh, role as, uh, as, as an accountable institution that it too participates in the Charter. Um, when I say participate, I mean in a, in a section like Section 7, for example, looking at it and determining what is, what is in fact the, the, the meaning of that section and what can be done. That doesn't preclude the judiciary, obviously, from, from bringing forth its own interpretation. And in the end, the, the Parliament of Canada or a legislative branch in a, in a, in a provincial uh, context might have a difficulty uh, doing battle against that uh, interpretation. But um, an intellectual battle nonetheless might take place. And that's the sort of context wherein a true dialogue can take place. Now, at the end of the day, the judicial word may be the final word, just for practical reasons, because the, the legislative branch won't simply ignore it necessarily, or it should not, but there is still an engagement. I mean, you saw a little bit of that, frankly, with the current uh, government in Ottawa with the assisted dying uh, bill. Oh, right. I was going to bring that up. But yeah. as you know, this is very much a live and controversial issue yeah. because in in the wake of their yeah. assisted dying bill, yeah. there's all, a new, you know, a new crop of yeah. legislation. I don't want to t talk about the because I, I, I was involved in a in, in one of the uh, Carter II determinations uh, where I had to d d decide whether uh, under the uh, under the exceptions that were were carved out uh, uh, whether or not uh, there, there were, were in a couple of cases uh, uh, justifications for in fact uh, proceeding to what uh, what the applicants wanted but um, I can talk nonetheless about what's happened because there you have a, a case where the Supreme Court is pronounced in Carter um, and the uh, government of the day has come back with 
a, a reading of Carter of its own and a reading of, of, of Section 7. Um, and um, that's, that's a healthy thing. Whatever happens to it down the road, that's a different issue. But that type of interaction, that type of dialogue, um, that type of uh, purposeful articulation of what Parliament thinks ought to be in the law is, uh, is, is I think, a, a refreshing and, and, and bold change. So um, coordinate interpretation is controversial, but I think in the future it perhaps will be the source of, 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 of future legitimacy for the judiciary and its role in the Charter. Uh, which is a which is a must necessary obviously, and uh, it'll also be I think a source of of public confidence in terms of how important determinations and, and decisions are made in the realm of complicated realm of social and political policy. Yeah, so let's touch briefly on um, the other section of of the charter that was one of the sort of compromise sections, and you you've made some comments on it. Section one. Which is uh, which is the the clause that provides that rights can be limited so so far as they're reasonable, um, and the way that this has been interpreted by the courts has really invited an extensive ad hoc weighing of risks and benefits. Um, it, it's hard to see the the courts when they engage in Section One proportionality analysis. It's it's hard to see them as doing anything but a type of legislative function. Um, and I'm critical of that. Uh, so if, if we can talk about what a sort of principled, proper approach to Section 1 in your view would be, without, without impugning the holy writ of the Oaks test. Well, it's, it's difficult to, 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 to do that without putting forth a, 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 a sort of a, a constitutional worldview of my own as it relates to that section. I, I just think you have to be, and I'll, I'll take a bit of a cowardly way out, Joanna. I think you just have to be with a section like that, uh, uh, ruthlessly uh, self-aware as a judge. And you have to understand that it is a discretionary section that's been defined by the judiciary. So we've, we've defined into that section a discretion which is, in fact, uh, largely the original Oaks test. And in that test is this definitionally legislative function of weighing, balancing, uh, ad hoc sort of uh, assessing cost benefits. Uh, I could go on and on about what it is, but if we understand what that is, I, I, I think it's a reminder that we have to be in the context of, of our Section 1 determinations all the more aware that we are playing a quasi-legislative role even if it is in the context of a juridical test and a, and a constitutional case. And, um, you know, in some instances uh, we have to recognize, and this is properly played out in, in, in the earlier stages of the Oaks test, um, minimal impairment, rational connection, um, you know, we have to recognize that sometimes government has a right to, to make certain choices. Sometimes government even has a right to be wrong on policy. And um, the wrongness of its policy, if you will, is not necessarily tantamount to uh, to reason why the limit might not be reasonable. That, that's a that's a very um, unsatisfactory answer to to a very good question. But I'm not going to sort of posit a new test, except to say there ought to be a reflexive, I don't want to say deference, but a, a reflexive caution in the way we undertake the the balancing and um, and evaluating that goes on in Section One, because to do otherwise is to um, act with a, a, a level of uh, hubris or, or, or an absence of humility that uh, 
I think, um, betrays a, a failure to appreciate the origins of that section and the, the complexity of the test and, and what it is in the end that we are really doing, which is a legislative rule that we have to do, but let's be modest about it. We're not, in most Section 1 cases, the beneficiaries of the type of vast legislative material that we, we, we would like. Um, I argued uh, many, many years ago at trial, the Silve case, the Silve 2 case, and um, it was an entirely uh, trial counsel with, with a colleague of mine, a good colleague of mine now, in the Court of Queen's Bench, Shadad Chartier, and it was entirely a Section 1 defense, and we had um, in our Section 1 justification uh, experts in political theory, political philosophy, uh, sociology, um, you know, uh, criminology. And at the end of the day, the case was lost in a 5-4 split, which involved a manner of weighing which, you know, some have written is not entirely satisfactory because it, it did involve, I think, a decision that seemed more legislative in the end than, than judicial. And the choices seemed to be more legislative than judicial. And um, again, I'm not pouting about that case, but it's a good example of, of the type of Section 1 decision that can, can leave some wondering, well, what, it is, what is it exactly that, that the Oaks test permits us to do well? And what perhaps, uh, where does uh, that test maybe have some limits? But uh, that, that's my view. I, I, I know I'm disappointing you without giving you a, a new <laughs> test, but, you know, I... <laughs> Uh, so, when you spoke about the uh, Bill C-14, the assisted dying bill, it brought to mind something I've been thinking about over today, which is one of the most interesting parts of your speech was where you talked about how it could be possible for Parliament or any legislature, any provincial legislature for that matter, um, to pass a bill that was good and wise, but not constitutional. And I've been thinking this over some examples of what that might look like. And the first that came to mind was the National Securities Regulator, which of course was found unconstitutional on division of powers grounds, totally different. But I think this, I think Bill C-14 is a good example because it's true that in the Carter decision, um, the Supreme Court of Canada found that people uh, who were gravely ill um, and who freely consented to their death had a right to visit a physician-assisted suicide Bill C-14 didn't go that far. It firmly situated the right to access a physician-assisted death in the context of end of life and terminal illness. Um, and perhaps if, if, you know, if you agree with what the Supreme Court said in Carter um, and their analysis, that's actually unconstitutional. Uh, that doesn't go far enough to safeguard the Section 7 rights of uh, ill people. On the other hand, um, it's such a seismic shift in our society to be legalizing physicians to administer death that it surely sees, seems good and wise to start slowly if we're going to enter this, um, you know, this extremely fraught territory. But I don't know, do you have any other examples about this good and wise but not necessarily constitutional? Um, well, I, if, I, if I give them, I'll be preempting <laughs> my participation in them or I'll be commenting on, on cases where I, I'm probably being more bold than I ought to be. I, I do believe that, and I, I, the, the, the distinction between bold and, and wise, 
we tend to conflate that which is constitutional with wisdom. I don't make that point necessarily in the context of, of what judges ought to be aware of because I think judges, first of all, everything we're talking about now is about either institutional balance or about the judicial method, judicial reasoning, um, and, and, and where I might have comment and political culture and where I might have comment in respect to where I see certain incongruities and certain things to lament. What I'm not talking about though are outcomes. I, 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 I'm not interested, I mean I'm, I'm interested as a citizen outcomes, but I'm, I'm not commenting now about results per se or, or, or outcomes in the past or outcomes in the future. Um, what I'm interested in, in is, is a fidelity to the judicial method, judicial reasoning, um, and uh, potential implications for, for, for the institutional balance. So back to your point, as it relates to this conflation of wisdom with constitutionality, I make that point really with two audiences. First of all, it's the legislative branch. The legislative branch, and this comes back to an earlier point I think that you were alluding to, uh, it tends to be all too um, quick to reflexively um, speak in language which is very, very similar to judicial formulations that come from judicial tests. I understand that. That's that's a, that's a normal thing. You want to make sure you're you're looking at your legislation responsibly. But if you're inspired entirely by judicial formulations or anticipations of potential interpretations of, of fact scenarios using a particular test, you're no longer doing what some would say you as a legislature legislator are required to do or or or, or should think about doing in a normative sense, which is looking at the wisdom or the rightness of your of your solution. Um, and that's, I think, a slightly impoverished way to conceptualize your rule. That doesn't mean you're, you're obviously going to do something which you know is unconstitutional, but if you're inhibited and mobilized by the concept of constitutionality in anticipation of something which might be unclear, I think you're, 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 um, you're abdicating a, a piece of your rule. The second part of my, my answer in terms of the second audience is, is the citizenry. Um, the citizenry in what, as well now sort of both in its discourse and its, its reflex, um, tends to now conflate the, the, the adequacy of a solution, uh, not by its, its, its wisdom or by its uh, intellectual viability or its, or its moral persuasiveness, but by the sterile notion of constitutionality. And that's, uh, that's a big change for, for a country like Canada. I'm not saying that people, the average citizen, are walk, walking around you know, obsessed with constitutionality, but very often they'll hear something in the evening news that, you know, this is unconstitutional, this legislative solution. So they right away think, well, it was, it was an unwise solution. It was an unwise legislative compromise. It was an unwise legislative accommodation. And I think there's something impoverished in that reflexive reaction. Um, and and uh, th that's where this idea of conflating wisdom and uh, and, and constitutionality, I think, is problematic. Um, and I guess this into another topic, and I'll let you take me there, but it's this idea that in this era where the judiciary is, is increasingly predominant um, and where the legislative branch seems to be somewhat more marginalized, um, because of the juridical nature of, of the formulations that oftentimes decide important political social issues. The average person is kind of left on the outside. They don't understand the language that, that 
or even the reference points that are used to decide an important issue anymore. So while they're prepared to reflexively accept that the case was decided because of constitutionality, they don't really get the reasons why the constitutionality for or against was decided as it was. That's not a good thing for a polity, and, and increasingly people are going to start feeling, and they do now, I think, notwithstanding their, their willingness to, to participate in, in constitutional adjudication, a lot of people are feeling somewhat disempowered from participating in issues of the day. Uh, A, because of this predominance of, 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 of you know, uh, adjudication of, of constitutional litigation, or constitutional issues, and political issues, but also because the political institutions that might have attracted them earlier are, are, are now less favored. So there's this flight from politics. All of this is, uh, is, is I think, uh, discussion that doesn't happen enough in terms of our polity. In, in that speech, I, one of the things I said was, um, and again, this comes back to my point, I'm not interested in outcomes or results. I'm not interested in where they fall on the ideological spectrum, but in this era of the Charter, where there is this institutional balance, imbalance, um, there seems to be an intellectual complacency about the consequences for our polity, where we're almost too accepting of, of, of this current state of, of, of relationship between the legislative and judicial branch. And uh, um, it's, it's, it's a complicated question, but I think we have to start thinking about it because it's, it's, uh, it's got consequences. Okay, well, to be a little bit provocative on this point, <clears throat> when you talk about Canada's unique political culture um, and the varying elements that were part of the mix leading up to Confederation, or sorry, leading up to the Charter, but also leading up to Confederation, and we are just a, an enormously diverse, um, regionally, linguistically, and culturally diverse Federation. Um, however, uh, when we talk, when you talk about Canada's unique political culture, we talk a lot about our historical roots. Um, however, Canada is now a nation of immigrants. Mm -hmm. We are very rapidly changing, <clears throat> and some might say that the more "quote unquote" American model of rights and liberal neutrality actually is is better suited to this sort of new postmodern multicultural Canada. Um, any reaction to that? Um, well, I, I, I'm completely endorsing of Canada's pluralistic state. Um, it's not always clear whether or not pluralism is as easily reconcilable with liberal neutrality as some people say. Um, so that's the first sort of point I would make, and that's the subject of a lot of a lot of debate in, in, in political theory circles. Um, but um, I think one can say that traditional Canadian political culture, and again, I. As you know, I, I believe it's fundamentally changed. Um, was this mix of liberal, non-liberal value uh, um, ideological strains? That's still possible now, but um, it's 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 only possible if, if 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 everyone's participating. When I say everyone, I mean the citizenry, um, legislative branch, and 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 the judiciary in ways that are equal. Um, Liberal neutrality, I, I mean, it's interesting you raise that. I, I'm not opposed to the concept of liberal neutrality, but uh, I, I personally have always had difficulty with the sort of uh, qualifier uh, or the noun um, neutrality. Um, liberal 
proponents of liberal neutrality are not neutral. Um, they're individuals who, who endorse the idea of neutrality, and neutrality itself is a point of view, is a, is a perspective, and uh, it's certainly one that's opted for by, by many. And again, I'm not disagreeing with it per se, but I sometimes wonder just how uh, supple and flexible it is if that becomes your defining perspective on, on, um, on, the, uh, on the resolution and addressing of complicated social and political problems, if that's going to be done in a, in a judicial context. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult topic to get into because it's a long one, but um, suffice to say that in the context of our current pluralistic society, um, I think, frankly, the, um, the best hope is to ensure that the judiciary looks after those things that it has to look after, but that purposeful efforts are made by a strong, robust government as well to look after this diversity. And uh, that's where perhaps I, I part company from some who believe that the judiciary is the only institution that can ensure those important freedoms and uh, uh, those important um, liberties that, uh, uh, that accommodate that type of uh, pluralism. Uh, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's not my view. They play an important role, but I, 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 I'm not prepared to concede that they, uh, there's not room for, uh, for a strong, robust legislative branch as well. Uh, so, so that's a useful juncture at which to pivot um, to our our colleague Leonid Sirota, um, who wrote some very um, some very well thought out comments and reactions to your speech, in which he almost entirely disagreed with what he what you said. Um, and the gist of his critique is that there's no reason to be nostalgic for the days of big, robust government. Not that you endorse big government, but there's no reason to suspect that government is a more efficient conduit of ensuring the citizens' liberty and, and rights than the courts. Um, government is intrinsically corrupt, corrosive. Um, there's problems of political ignorance. Um, and essentially, we should not be looking in any, um, in any romantic way to, uh, to the power of parliament. Um, I took that to be his first point. His second point was that, look, yes, it's, it's true that the institutional balance has shifted. Um, but it happens all the time. Law's empire is not set in stone. It's certainly true that the judiciary has their hands in all kinds of matters that would have been unthinkable a few decades ago. But it, it happens, and there's nothing intrinsically bad about it. Well, fair enough. Um, and I have nothing but respect for Professor Sirota. His, his blog and his thoughts are, uh, I would have preferred he agreed with me, as I prefer all people who I respect to. Uh, would agree with me, but fair enough. That that's his position. But uh, I guess I have a hard time reconciling it because he begins from the premise that that sort of um, involves a caricature of of what I call purposeful government. I mean, he um, he perhaps wouldn't necessarily endorse all of your adjectives because they're pretty stark and they're pretty pretty strong. But I get a sense that he'd, he'd accept a lot of them. But that I think is a caricature. That doesn't mean we ought not to be cautious, and that we ought not to recognize the, you know, the uh, the potentially uh, uh, oppressive role of, of any government when it comes to uh, the private sphere. Um, but I reject, first of all, his his, his premise that government uh, is that menacing. Um, I think certainly we have to be cautious, but I think government has a role in the protection of freedoms. Insofar as freedoms properly understood also involves 
the inculcation and its citizenry of certain habits, certain appreciations, and certain perspectives that a citizenry must have if freedom is to be protected. But let's accept for a moment his premise that government ought to be described or caricatured, if you want to use my phrase, as, uh, as he might. Um, then we move to, well, where is it that freedoms are best protected? Well, he clearly prefers the institution that is the judiciary. Again, fair enough. Uh, if you can defend what you think that institution offers up um, as, a, as, a, as a counterweight to all the things that uh, he's concerned about government representing. Well, I certainly accept that the judiciary has done a great job uh, enforcing and protecting rights. Um, but there's also a level of unaccountability and a le level of indeterminacy to some of what the judiciary does. Um, not everybody believes that some of, the, some of the interpretation of Section 7, for example, and some of its purposeful efforts in respect of revisiting substantive sections of the Charter uh, every four or five years necessarily leads to the kind of clarity and the kind of predictability that is good for um, what his goal obviously is, which is the maximization of freedom. But we could, we could remedy those problems while preserving a strong judiciary, right? Those are two different critiques. But why can't one do the same with a, a, le a legislative branch? I mean, unless you believe fundamentally and philosophically that government is evil and the people who occupy it are, are, are fundamentally flawed, there are ways to improve it or to resuscitate it. Um, all I'm saying is that when you look, for example, and I'm taking I'm addressing the debate, I think, on the basis of, of, of his criticism of my speech. Um, if you take, for example, a section like Section 7 of the Charter with all of its indeterminacy and all of its unpredictability, there's a level of fluidity, fluidity there that um, doesn't necessarily allow one to know or predict when the next judicial intervention and, and, and discovery of a new right will occur, which may or may not infringe in ways that Mr. Uh, Professor Sroda wouldn't like. Right, and maybe we should talk about the sort of the origin of, of that problem with Section 7. Section 7 guarantees the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, um, and it was initially explicitly drafted, we know this because we have access to the debates, so as to include only procedural and not substantive rights. Um, just, Justice Lamel, um, some years after the adoption of the Charter in his decision, Motor Vehicle Act, uh, determined that he was not in agreement with that um, for very, you know, erudite reasons um, having to do with the democratic legitimacy of the Charter in and of itself. He, he authorized himself to give Section 7 a substantive reading. Um, and, and that's been sort of the, the nub of Section 7 becoming, um, becoming a, a sword as well as a shield, I would say. Well, that's right. I mean, look, at I, I'm. Uh, it's a good opportunity for me to, to say at this juncture that um, uh, both my judicial oath and, and the principle of stare decisis requires me, as I always will, to interpret and apply the law based upon what the uh, governing jurisprudence requires. And the governing jurisprudence requires Section 7 to be interpreted substantively. And that's certainly the history of the Section 7 jurisprudence since the case you, uh, you just mentioned. Um, but there's no question that um, uh, Justice Lemaire made a uh, purposeful choice to 
uh, ignore the intentions of uh, not only the framers but the drafters in terms of uh, what Section 7 was supposed to be. Um, now, Professor Sirota would say, well, it, it's not a bad thing to ignore the, uh, the intent of the framers. Uh, that's a form of originalism that's just not accepted. Fair enough, I, I, I grant him that, but there is a, a form of originalism when it comes to uh, looking at the nature of a section like Section 7, which uh, I think does have some, uh, some, uh, uh, some uh, uh, validity in Canada, and that's the notion of original meaning. Uh, whether we know we do it or not, we, we have used it in the past. And, uh, you know, it's hard for me, and this is the point that I made in a, in a quick uh, email response to him, it's hard for me to know how you can reconcile um, a use, which he seems to be prepared to acknowledge, the use of uh, a potential original meaning interpretation of Section 7, and at the same time ignore the intent of, of, of the framers and the drafters. Um, it's interesting because um, Justice Lemaire, in his judgment, well, he had other reasons. He, insofar as looking at the, the, the question of the, of the framers and the drafters, didn't look, per se, at the original understanding sort of uh, mode of, 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 of interpreting that section. He looked, in some ways, caricatured with, with, with reason, the difficulties of, of trying to get at what was specifically intended. Um, you know, again, I, I have trouble with the reasoning in that case, but it's a case that, uh, that governs, and uh, I just think Section 7 now leaves so much open um, in terms of um, judicial um, ambit that when it comes to responding to Professor Sirota, and this gets back to your earlier question, I, I posed a rhetorical question. I mean, is the unpredictability of that judicial power flowing from Section 7 that much different than the power that he fears from the political branch? Um, again, for me, what makes uh, our judiciary's decisions and decision-making um, persuasive, powerful, and legitimate is the adherence to an identifiable and predictable legal doctrine. Um, and uh, the way Section 7 has been used in the last number of years um, hasn't always been completely consistent with that proposition. Um, and these are good people. I, I know many of them. They're not, these aren't people on, a, on an ideological frolic. These aren't people who are trying to do... But insofar as we as judiciary are judged by our ability to uh, transparently uh, use a judicial method and a form of judicial reasoning that can be traced to constitutional doctrine. The history of Section 7 over the last few years and some of the judgments that have come forth uh, leave some people you know, not entirely satisfied. Um, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's interesting to, to see um, you know, the, the, um, the, 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 the paradox or incoherence in, 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 um, in, in Professor Sirota's position vis-a-vis -vis government um, when he seems to be so accepting of, 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 of Section 7 as being used substantively. Interestingly, though, he's, I think, concerned, as, as many are, about some of the decisions in the past, but uh, hopefully with a bit of time I can convince Professor Thanks Sirota. for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, well, please consider well, supporting us. You can visit our website at runnymeetsociety.ca. You can also email me at jbaron, J-B-A-R-O-N, at runnymeetsociety.ca with any thoughts or questions. Thanks again and see you next time.